in First uh, Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen, as uh, Timothy is writing to the young preacher, or excuse me, Paul writing to the young teacher uh, Timothy, and he's giving him some you know advice and pointers and tips uh, along the way, and also instructing him in uh, what he needs to be doing as an evangelist. He he tells him this again, First Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen. He says, "Until I come." Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And I want to focus in on that phrase where he says, give attention to public reading. We know uh, reading of the Scriptures was an important part of uh, for the Jews in their synagogue worship. You know, Jesus, uh, we we learn in Luke chapter four, was uh, in front of the uh, the, the congregation of the, of the Jews, and he was reading the scriptures before them. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and, uh, and Barnabas arrived to, to a congreg- or again another uh, synagogue, they got up and the scriptures were being read as well. And it's also a vital part of Christian worship that we read about in the New Testament. When uh, Paul wrote First Thessalonians, that letter to that church in Thessalonica, he said at the very end of it in chapter 5, verse 27, he said, make sure you read this to all the brethren. Right? And what better place to do that than in the assembly or in the church to read this letter to all of the brethren. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells that church, he says, when you get this letter, read it to the congregation. And then I want you to pass this on to the church that's over in Laodicea and, re- and have them read it. And then you receive the letter that the Laodiceans are getting from me and read that letter as well. Again, the point is, is that the reading of Scripture was extremely important uh, to the early church uh, as well. You know, and I know that there are some churches, maybe you've seen this as well, that, you know, instead of on a, like a fifth Sunday, instead of, you know, having a singing service or uh, having, a, you know, a different type of service, that they'll read the Scriptures uh, you know, rather than having a, you know, a 30-minute sermon. Again, we want to draw attention to reading the scriptures from time to time. And so what I'd like to do, I'd like to do something a little bit different for the next four uh, Sunday evenings that I'll be preaching uh, from uh, the pulpit is I want to spend time in the book of Colossians. And we're going to take one chapter at a time and we're going to go through and, uh, you know, because this is a book that I've been wanting to study uh, personally uh, in depth a lot longer uh, than I've had before. Again, it's only four chapters, so it'll only take us four weeks to, to do this. Uh, but it's going to be beneficial, I think, to you as to myself as well. Uh, this isn't going to be a topical sermon, you know, where, where maybe, you know, I, I pick a topic and preach on that like we did a couple of weeks ago with the, the sanctity of life. And this isn't a, a textual sermon, which, you know, I, I did this morning where, you know, I took a, a group of verses and kind of made my points uh, throughout those group of verses. But this is more of a, you know, what they call or what they teach us in uh, preaching school, an expository sermon. You know, we're going to, you know, expose what the text has to say, you know, really what it, Paul is trying to get at. But, you know, before we jump into there, I just want to make this, uh, this kind of, this, uh, uh, you know, announcement that, you know, when we think of the chapters and verses within our Bibles, you know, let's remember that those are man-made divisions. You know, Paul never wrote uh, in chapters and in verses. Those things came a lot later. Uh, that, that man put those in, and of course it's quite helpful uh, to be able to, you know, find Colossians chapter 4, you know, verse 10 or, or so, you know, quite easily because of that system. Uh, 
And sometimes those chapter breaks make sense. And uh, sometimes they won't. And we'll see that uh, when we get into the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 of Colossians. But again, let's, you know, let's remember that you know, Paul did not write uh, these letters in book format. He didn't write them in chapters. And so, uh, but, but for the benefit of our study, we're going to do that. We're going to look at one chapter at a time. And so we want to examine, again, this letter that he writes to the church that's in Colossae. So let me give you a little bit of background information about this church here that met at Colossae. This, uh, this uh, letter is what we often refer to as one of the prison epistles. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from his Roman imprisonment at the book of Acts. Uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. These, all four of these were written uh, in prison. And we can tell that because he'll use language uh, throughout the, uh, this letter by uh, describing himself or someone else as a fellow prisoner of his. Uh, he'll tell them in, the, uh, in verse 18 to remember my imprisonment. So again, uh, let's remember that while Paul is writing this letter to the church, to the Christians in Colossae, that he was imprisoned. Now, he wrote this, uh, many scholars point to right around A.D. 60, A.D. 62. So just to give you a time frame, this is about 30 years after the death of Jesus that he is writing this letter. And we don't know much about this congregation here. You know, this is not a church that uh, Paul uh, established. If I had a map for you, I should have put a, put a map up here on the board to kind of see where it is. Uh, but it's in this territory that we are familiar with as Asia Minor. Uh, if you re- recall reading in the book of Revelation, Revelations chapter 2 and 3, you know, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches of Asia, Philadelphia and Ephesus and uh, Laodicea and such. Uh, Colossae is right in that region. Okay, so that's sort of the region that Paul is writing to. But again, we never read in the scriptures or in the book of Acts in particular of Paul visiting this area or establishing a church in this area. A matter of fact, uh, when we look at Colossians chapter one, verse four, uh, Paul mentions that since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, you know, he doesn't say uh, we saw your faith, but we heard of your faith. And in chapter two, verse one, he mentions that, uh, you know, he can't wait for all of those who have not you know, personally seen his face. And so we believe, again, that, that Paul maybe had never uh, been there, but possibly he could have because he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, the, the church in Ephesus. Uh, there was one point in one of his missionary journeys, he spent two years in Ephesus. And Ephesus and, and again, uh, Colossae were about 100 miles apart. So it wasn't that uh, far for him to travel. Uh, in this church in Colossae, again, in this region, uh, we're going to read about these, some of these men like Epaphras, uh, who is going to be uh, what we find out to be is their preacher. And you remember Philemon and Onesimus? Uh, these were two individuals who lived in that, in that region as well. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 9, uh, Paul specifically mentions Onesimus, uh, that, that he was from Colossae. He was from that region. And, and if you read in Philemon, you know, Paul even says in, in verse 22 that he's planning to visit the, the, that church one day, that area one day. And so he tells them to prepare lodging for him. So we know that Paul did eagerly want to visit uh, that region or that church there, the Colossian church. Uh, Colossians, again, four chapters. The first two are what we refer to as doctrinal chapters. Uh, this is pertaining to the faith. These are things that we need to know as Christians that's going to help us. And then the last 
two chapters. Chapters 3 and 4 are more practical. Uh, They're how we should apply our faith. They're how we should live as Christians. If you studied the the letter to the Ephesians and to the Colossians back-to-back, you would notice that they are pretty similar. Again, they were both prison epistles, but here's the difference. Ephesians speaks to the church of Christ, while Colossians speaks to the Christ of the church. Again, Ephesians speaks about of the body, but Colossians is speaking of the head of the body. And a lot of, again, a lot of scholars say that this is the most Christ-centered book we have in the Bible. Almost 72 verses uh, pertaining uh, uh, to, pertaining to the refer- referencing the Christ. And while it presents the glorious relationship of Christ to the church, as in all of you know, Paul's letters, he is dealing uh, with some of the problems that he knows going on in that congregation. And we're going to especially see that next week uh, when we study chapter 2 together, uh, that there is a lot of false uh, teaching that he has to deal with. And uh, we'll look at that uh, again next week as some Gnosticism and worldly f- philosophy. Some were worshiping angels. And so Paul is going to deal uh, with that in, in more uh, depth next week when we look at chapter 2. But again, the, the theme of this book, it's Christ-centered. It, it's Christ is supreme. It's the preeminence of Christ. And that's what we want to really a focus on here in chapter one, because that is Paul, as he's laying out his case of this letter, uh, he wants them to understand that Christ is supreme. So let's begin by reading uh, the first few verses, uh, verses one through 12, as we see the supremacy of Christ in the gospel message. So Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What I want to do is, you know, really focus in on a couple of verses within this section. Again, the supremacy of Christ in the gospel message. There, verse 2, he refers to the Christians there as saints and faithful brethren. You know, that's some important things that we need to understand whenever we begin a book. 
uh, to understand who the author is writing to. Paul tells us he is writing to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. And again, notice the location he tells them. Uh, He gives them two locations. Number one, they were in Christ. And number two, uh, they were at Colossae. Well, of course, in Christ is their spiritual location. Colossae is their physical location. And that, of course, pales in comparison to the first because they are in Christ. And their faith was based on hearing the gospel and their obedience to it. There in verses three through eight. You know, a lot of times we can talk about some of these, you know, social nuances that, that we see in various generations Right. Uh, the baby boomers. Right? I, th- I think those are the, uh, they're around 60 to 80 years right now in age. The baby boomers, you know, th- they value you know, rules. They value a sense of oughtness, you know, that uh, you ought to do things uh, a certain way. And then sometimes we pick on, you know, the millennials. You know, I think I'm technically considered a millennial, uh, you know, right around the age of 25 to 40. And they're different, right? They value relationships. They, they value those relationships that are behind the rules uh, that they have. And so the baby boomers, they see, you know, the, the millennials as rebellious and not necessarily following rules. And while the, the millennials look at the baby boomers, and maybe criticize them a little bit for, you know, blindly following rules and not asking why sometimes. But here's the point. Neither generation is faultless. The baby boomers need to be reminded that uh, rules without relationships is rebellion. And the millennials need to re- be reminded that relationships uh, without rules, you know, equal ruin. And we need that balance, that balance between the two. Well, the Colossians here in verse... Uh, five, we're told they had heard the truth. They had received the gospel message. But what happened with that gospel message that they received? Verse six tells us that as it's spreading throughout the known world, right, the Roman Empire, that they are constantly bearing fruit and uh, increasing. You know, it's, it's not just that they're hearing the message uh, but they're responding to it. It's a call to action. The, the Bible, right, is not just to be read, but it's to transform our lives into the image of uh, Christ. Because, again, Jesus was not full of truth, but he was full of grace and truth. And, and again, constantly bearing fruit. The Colossians were Paul says they were constantly bearing fruit. Now, that could have been a, a, a couple of different things. Maybe he was, uh, Paul was uh, talking about in respect to the converts that, that, that they were um, possibly converting. Or, or maybe he's talking about the, the, the spiritual fruit, uh, that, that they were these godly qualities in their lives kept showing up. Again, the, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the, the Bible tells us that the, the Word of God is a seed. Right? The word of God is a seed and, it's, and that's provided by God. But yet that seed must be planted. It must be planted in good soil and it must be cultivated and watered and gardened. And, and that's our part as Christians to plant that seed. But the, eventually that plant is going to grow and it's going to produce fruit. Right. And that's that's God's part. God has the increase. God causes the growth. And for the Colossians, 
Uh, we're introduced here in, in verse 7 by a man by the name of Epaphras who was the preacher in that region. He was the one, it tells us, that they learned the gospel from. Epaphras was the one who went and he planted in that good soil and he watered. And because of the results, uh, these Colossians uh, grew in the gospel. They obeyed the gospel. You know, and what did he what did he tell them? You know, obviously, you know, we, we're not privy to that, but he probably taught them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. To, to love their neighbor, to put others above themselves, to forgive, to defend the faith, all of these aspects of, of the gospel, of the faith, you know, Epaphras planted in their lives. In verses 9 through 12, Paul tells us that when he found out about their faith, that he did everything that he could uh, to promote it, to advance it. He, he did not cease praying for it. He, he wanted them to have more knowledge and more wisdom and more understanding and to continue to learn to walk in a manner uh, worthy of the Lord. Right? Again, these Colossians, they learned the grace of God and truth and they were instantly bearing fruit. Right? And that's you know, a point that we need to understand from this church uh, here, this example from this church is, again, w- when we get that message, you know, we need to do things with it, right? We just uh, cannot be hearers of the word only, but also doers of it. Let's look at verses 13 and 14, the supremacy of Christ in redemption. He continues, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice Paul says he rescued us. You know, he includes himself in there. Uh, he, uh, being Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness. You know, have you ever seen one of those videos, uh, of, you know, maybe an animal that gets trapped in a, in a fencing? You know, it's stuck there. And so somebody has to eventually come over and kind of, you know, cut away at the fence and to let the animal out so it can escape. And it just, you know, it takes off in a flash and runs away. You know, God did not simply rescue us, you know, from our sins and then set us free to live uh, the way that we want to. Uh, but he transferred us. Right? He picked us up and he took us out of this domain of darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Maybe your translation says he conveyed us or translated us. But again, he transferred us from one realm, from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that, of course, is the church. We were trapped in sin. We had no escape. And God, uh, through the death of Jesus, was able to transfer us uh, into his beloved kingdom for those of us who uh, obey his gospel. You know, when we think about at that time, you know, conquering forces, uh, when they took over a land, when they took over a nation, you know, they would usually transport them from their from, you know, the, the nation that they conquered and would take them back to their homeland or to another land. Right? And that's exactly what Christ does when we defeat Satan in our lives. You know, he transfers us to the church. And what, again, what does this verse also confirm? Uh, Paul says the church is here. Right. Uh, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
This morning we talked in our Bible class about John the Baptist and Jesus who were preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Paul is telling us that, that the kingdom is here. Well, somewhere in the middle, the kingdom was established. The, the church was established. And that, of course, was in Acts chapter 2. The kingdom is here. And now that we are safe in the kingdom, the church, uh, he tells us there in verse 14, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus purchased the church with his blood, and we have been redeemed, released from that spiritual slavery. Again, we see su supremacy of Christ in redemption. Uh, let's look at verses 15 through 17 as Paul continues his thought, the supremacy of Christ now in creation. Paul writes this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul again writes, He is the image of the invisible God. God. Now that, that's maybe a little hard to fathom, right? He is the image of the invisible God. And, and that Greek word uh, for image is where we get our English word icon. You know, we, we know what an icon is, right? We, we see the golden arches and, and that's an, a representation, an icon of McDonald's, right? Well, we understand that. Well, Jesus is the icon of God, right? Jesus represents God in the flesh, you know, Jesus even said that in John chapter 14, verse 9. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the icon of God. And if you want to know what God is like, right, then, then study the life of Jesus. Again, uh, verse 15, not only is he the image of the invisible God, but Paul also says he is the firstborn of all creation. And I want to talk about this verse a little bit because this is a verse that sometimes we can get confused about. Is Paul saying that Christ was created? Again, the firstborn of all creation? Well, what we need to do is go back you know, into the Old Testament and see uh, some of the aspects to you know, how the Bible's writers uh, use uh, this term firstborn. You know, to be the firstborn in the Hebrew family, it was a superior status. You know, remember Esau? He received his father's blessing and his birthright and the birthright to the family until his brother came and stole those things away. Uh, we can think of Reuben as the as the oldest in, in his um, of his brothers, and he had the respect of his siblings, right? The the role uh, model of his younger siblings, and of course, being the firstborn in the family meant you got a double portion of the inheritance. You got twice as much as everyone else. And though, and often we use uh, that word firstborn to describe, you know, a physically firstborn child, uh, it's also used to mean someone who, again, is highly exalted, who is highly esteemed, uh, highly loved. Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, God says that Israel was his firstborn. Again, uh, Israel was not the firstborn uh, people, the first nation, of course, but uh, what he's referring to, God is referring to them as his privileged nation. In Psalm 89, verse 27, David is referred to as the firstborn. Was David the oldest brother of all his brothers? Well, of course not. We know David was number eight of all his brothers. 
But again, uh, the psalmist says that he is the highest of the kings of the earth. God was going to make him the the greatest king of the earth. Uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 9, Ephraim is referred to as the firstborn. But how could that be if Manasseh, his his brother, was born before him? Well, again, uh, we are talking about preeminence. We are talking about rank. Uh, We are talking about priority. Uh, These firstborn verses does not mean that they were, uh, you know, physically firstborn. But instead, again, uh, the the Holy Spirit is letting us know that uh, this is a status. This is a privilege. This is uh, of being firstborn. And so Jesus, being the firstborn of all creation, he has priority and dominion over all creation. And that's really what Paul gets at at verses 16 and 17. He confirms this point, right? Jesus is the source of. That of all things that have been created, right? As the creator, he is superior to all things that have been created. He says over the heavens or the earth, uh, the things that are visible, invisible, uh, the, thing, the highest institutions on earth that we can name, Jesus is greater, superior than those things. And not only did he create all these things, Paul says that he holds them together, you know, how good would a, a house function without nails and screws? Right? Uh, it would fall over, wouldn't it? But the same is true with the world and the universe. We think of the, the, the moon and, and the sun and the planets that, that have been created and put into motion. You know, Jesus holds these things together with the power of his word. It's one thing to create a universe, but actively holding it together, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a little mind-blowing to think about. But that is the superiority of Christ that Paul is referencing for us here in these verses. Christ, again, he is the creator. He is not created, and that makes him the firstborn of all creation. Again, supreme priority rank. Let's look at verses 18 through 23, the supremacy of Christ in the church. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's just focus in on that verse 18 that Paul says that again, he is the head of the body the church. Again, the body is the church of Christ, and Jesus is that head. And if that was a verse that we all need to understand, you know, from this chapter, you know, we need to keep this fresh on our minds, right? Because within the church, if we understand that, all selfish attitudes would evaporate because Christ is head of the church. It's his will that we want done. And outside of the church, you know, denominations would evaporate, evaporate because, again, he is head of the church. Man-made doctrines would no longer be promoted. 
He is the head. He supplies direction, control. He supplies the care for the body. And as the body, the church, we would look to him. We should look to him for guidance. And then he says, because of that, we have been reconciled to him. You know, I've mentioned this before, but uh, as an accountant, you know, one of my favorite duties was bank reconciliations. Uh, You know, taking what was in the bank account and trying to get it to uh, match what was in the the system, uh, the accounting system at work. You know, and so uh, that's the same thing uh, that Jesus or that Paul is talking here about Jesus is that he now reconciles us uh, through his death. He's removed that barrier, that dividing wall. And now Jews and Gentiles are all uh, part of this body, his body. His death on the cross made the reconciliation possible. And then as Christians, you know, notice again in verse 22, we can now be holy and blameless and beyond reproach when we are presented to him on that day. Again, holy blameless we're spotless guilt free without blemish we're beyond reproach you know there's no accusation can be made upon us but again notice in 23 if indeed you continue in the faith there is a contingency there that we must continue in the faith finally the supremacy of christ in the ministry of paul verses 24 through 29 now i rejoice in my sufferings for your sake And in my flesh, I do not share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And just... You know, this final point, I just want to point out, you know, notice all of these phrases that Paul says. You remember, uh, you know, Paul uh, previously was was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And of course, his life was changed uh, when uh, uh, Christ came to him and offered him the, the opportunity to uh, to change his life. And does not does this not sound like a man who is beyond grateful to serve Christ? Again, verse 24, to rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In verse 25, that I want to be a steward for you, Christ, and I want to fully carry out the preaching of God's word. In verse 28, I want to proclaim him by leading others to salvation, by admonishing and warning them, by teaching every man, by, by presenting every man complete in Christ. That was Paul's uh, labor of love that he says there in verse 29. I am striving. I am laboring to do this. I want to teach, I want to preach, and I want to present every man complete in Christ. Not that that's going to be possible, but that is his goal for everyone to have that hope of heaven one day. Well, I know that was a lot. Colossians chapter 1. You know, but really, you know, when we focus on chapter 1, it's hitting us with the supremacy of Christ. Again, we see that in the fact that Christ created all things. We see that in the fact that Christ is head of the church. 
We see uh, that in the fact that he has reconciled us, he has redeemed us, and we see that uh, the fact that Paul is willing to give it his all to serve Christ. And again, this letter, especially this chapter, is Christ-centered. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, again, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, the head of the church. So I pray that our our study this evening uh, will benefit you and and your walk with Christ and and strive to serve him uh, to the best of our abilities as uh, as, as we read the scriptures and, again, grow closer to him and to learn more about how he would want us to live our lives. Again, we'll, we'll look at chapter 2 uh, next Sunday evening, but as we offer the invitation this evening, uh, if anyone needs to respond, if anyone's ready to become a Christian, to start a life anew, become a new creation, to uh, be added to the church, again, won't you come forward? Or if you need the prayers of the congregation here, to make your needs known as together we stand and sing the song of invitation.